Um, but I hope that you guys are thirsty for the word. And, and what we are looking at today, as Kaz mentioned, is it's, it's Palm Sunday. Um, it's the start of the Holy Week. And preparing for this, I, I didn't realize it, but I was quite amazed at the fact that on Palm Sunday, we're going to read about it, but Jesus comes in, there's this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And the point, the part of the story that stood out for me or shocked me a bit is that it's in the space of a week that he goes from being hailed as the king of Israel to being put to death and being crucified on the cross in seven days. So we're going to turn to our text. It's John 18, verse 1 to 11. And we're just going to read through that quickly. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So this is, this is our context for today. It's Palm Sunday. It's the Sunday before Easter. And it's this reminder to Christians about this triumphal entry into, into Jerusalem. And, and Kaz read from one of the Gospels. We're going we're gonna to go back and read from John. So this is earlier in the same book in John 12, verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughters of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And there's this belief at the time that Jesus, is he maybe this person that's going to come and and overthrow the Roman government. He's this coming king. And people are thinking that he, they know that there's this promise of the Messiah. They don't know what it's going to look like, but they're thinking that maybe the Roman government is going to be overthrown. And, and as Jews or as Israelites, it's their time. Their kingdom is coming. And they're shouting out, behold, here comes the king of Israel, Hosanna. And if we think of Jesus' disciples, those people that were closest to him, there's probably also this growing excitement in them. You know, they're thinking, what's going to happen? Like, we know that this person is special. Is, is something going to happen now that he's coming into Jerusalem? But the last thing that his disciples are probably thinking is that in seven days' time, Jesus is going to be dead and he's not going to be there with them. So as we start this text, we read that in verse 1, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, 
he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. So it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, so what are these words that Jesus has been saying? And to understand this, we need to go back a little bit before, um, and I'm going to paraphrase, you can follow with me on the screen, uh, but I'm going to try and sum up what is this important message that Jesus is trying to get across. So if we go back to, to chapter 15, Jesus is declaring himself as a king. He is saying that he is the true vine, and my father is the gardener. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. He kind of then goes on to speak about the world's hatred of the disciples and of himself and of expectant persecution. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And a little bit later, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And then he starts to tell them about the Holy Spirit. In chapter 16, in verse 4, he says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So he's saying these things. He's got this message that's, that's coming across consistently in this buildup. But his disciples, much like us, they still they don't quite understand him. This is what they say in chapter 16. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you'll see me, and again a little while and you'll see me, and because I'm going to my father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't actually know what he's talking about. So Jesus explains more simply what he means in terms of his death and his coming resurrection, that the disciples are going to be sad as Jesus leaves and he returns to his father, but their sadness will turn to joy when they see him again. And they finally say in verse 29, oh, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And finally, Jesus prays for them again, and he explicitly states that he's going to leave the world, he's going to return to his Father, and his prayer is that God will keep the disciples safe. I, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So what I want us to notice in, in these things that Jesus has been saying is that there's, there are these contrasting views. It's like this um, melodic harmony that happens throughout this chapter of John where we've got the world's perspective and we've got Christ's perspective. So if we had to often think of something in our lives, a difficult circumstance, from the world's perspective, 
that circumstance is now. We think of it in the present. We don't really look. It's difficult for us to see past it and look to the future. And it just, it seems so permanent. But in reality, it is actually temporary. We've all faced trials and tribulations. They've all seemed massive at the time. But as, as we progress and as time passes, that thing that was so huge for us, probably we can't even remember it anymore. And so when we are in the midst of those circumstances, they just seem so permanent. But the reality is that they're temporary. And from Christ's perspective, he's looking at a perspective that's eternal and that is permanent. In the midst of these circumstances and these difficult times, often the worldly perspective is that we need rescuing from something. But Christ's perspective is that we need rescuing from ourselves. Again, if we look at our problem from the the perspective of the world, it often seems like our circumstances are in control or we need to take control of our circumstances. But from Christ's perspective, He has absolute and complete authority over our circumstances. And if we look at Jesus' context, if we look at what's about to happen to him, that he's going to die and be crucified on the cross, from the world's perspective, Jesus has been humbled. His disciples have deserted him, and it's dire. But from Christ's perspective, he's returning to his glory, and he's sending the Holy Spirit so that his disciples will never be alone. The world, our our desire often is to be free, free of circumstances, free of, we want to be independent, we want to be in control of what we can do. We don't want to be bonded to anything, but Christ's desire is that we are bonded, that we are bonded and united to God. And, And that's summed up by Jesus saying, Christ followers are going to be hated by this world and not part of this world but we are loved by God and part of a future and eternal glory. So that's just us setting the scene for the context of this passage today. Jesus knows that he's going to be wrongfully accused, that he's going to be crucified on a cross, and that he's going to return to heaven. He's got precious time left with his disciples. It's a few days when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a few hours It's almost like those final words on his deathbed, and he's trying to convey this message. And the message that he's trying to convey is that there are two gardens. There's a garden of Gethsemane that they're in now, this worldly viewpoint of it's now, and it seems permanent, but it's actually temporary. And he's conveying to them that there's a garden to come. There's an eternal and a future garden that is very different, and it has a very different perspective to what we're facing now. So here we are. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a place that he's been before. Uh, he's gone there with his disciples. There's maybe a regular rhythm to, to him going there with his disciples. This place is familiar. Um, but the circumstances for Jesus, we know in this time, even though he's been there before and he knows it and it's familiar, the circumstances this time around are absolutely dour. Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him. So he stepped forward to meet them. Who are you looking for? He asked. Jesus, the Nazarene, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. As Jesus said, I am he, they all drew back and fell to the ground. Once more, he asked them, who are you looking for? So our starting point here is that we actually need to realize that Jesus is not 
taken by surprise in this moment. He's, he's not flabbergasted. He's not shocked. He's not impassive or nonchalant. It says that Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, he's aware of, of the future of what is about to come. And we read actually that in Matthew's gospel, just before Judas arrives, that Jesus had been praying for some way out of these circumstances. In Matthew 26, verse 28, My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And a little later on it says, He went on a little farther and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. So Jesus, being fully human, we know that Jesus was fully human and fully God. Sounds weird, but but that's the reality of, of who he was. And being fully human, Jesus doesn't want to die. He's full of grief to the point that he's pleading with his father, please, God, find another way. Take this cup of suffering from me. I don't want to drink this. I know what's coming, and I don't want to endure it, Lord. Is there another way? Please show me another way. Disciples, stay up and pray with me because my soul is crushed to the point of grief. Yet, I want your will to be done, God, not mine. And this is the focus for us today. How do we follow Christ's example? If we faced with similar circumstances, how do we say, not my will, but your will be done? He said, yeah. That was delicious. As I'm talking now, I just want to allow the Holy Spirit to stir up in your guys' lives just a circumstance or a cup of suffering maybe that you guys had to drink. Something that you can remember where maybe you felt helpless. Maybe it was a health circumstance and you had a really uncertain future. Maybe it was a relational issue. Maybe it's a marriage or a friendship or a family member where you just cannot see a reconciliation. Maybe it's finance where you're feeling like there's a crippling debt and, and it's, it's crushing you. And, and again, you just you don't know how that future is going to look. I don't know what garden you guys are finding yourself in right now. But I want us to look at the words of Jesus and the wisdom that he's sharing here on his deathbed. That, hey, if you can't think of this, this circumstance, it's coming. In this world, you will have tribulation. If Jesus was persecuted, we're going to be persecuted. So it's coming. You either can think of it or you are experiencing it right now. It's a constant theme across the the chapters that we've touched on. But so is this, that we are not of this world. Jesus wasn't of this world and neither are we. So can I say, this is me, and and I'm sure that you guys are are similar in in how I process these circumstances, is that I have this natural reaction to want to control my circumstances. So there's this misconception that we all have that, that we can navigate our way out of these circumstances on our own. We can take back control. So if our figurative garden is a health scare, 
our natural reaction is we are going to go and find the best doctor that we can and go and get the best medical advice, and we're going to do whatever we can to make things better. What's our prognosis? What can I afford? Um, what medical care is available? Or if our garden relates to our marriage, we're going to look at what we can do. We can go to counseling. We can go to therapy. We can get a new house, a new car, a dog, a child. Maybe it's divorce. I, I don't know. But we, we want to, uh, we bias towards action. Now, don't misunderstand me here in what I'm trying to say. I'm not saying that all of these things are bad and that we shouldn't take action. And I'm also not saying that we should just sit idly by and, and let God take care of everything. I'm not saying that we do nothing, and I'm not saying that we do everything in our power to sort this thing out. So what am I saying? I'm saying, let's look to what Jesus did in the midst of his garden. Whom do you see? This who betrayed him answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. I just want us to pause a little bit on this verse. Because at the end of that verse, there's this short little sentence. But I just want us to have a look at the power that's in that. When Jesus says, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And the, the other gospels, they don't really mention that. It's, it's really here in John that we see this, that with three words, Jesus says, I am he, and an army steps back and falls to the ground with words that Jesus said. And I think part of that is, this is Jesus' humanness in the same way that when we faced with this this trial or this circumstance, and there's this reaction inside of us that we want to take control of our situation. I think Jesus in his humanness, is, there's the same um, desire to do that. And he's, and he's trying to maybe show, listen, with my mere words, with three of them, I can, I can completely control the situation. The commentators say that the reason that this army fell back was likely due to awe and terror at Jesus saying, I am he, I am the Messiah. And we see that with those words, Jesus, he could have escaped the situation, delayed the situation, overcome the situation. But that's not what happens. Because as it plays out again, he says, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that had been spoken of those whom he gave me, I have lost not one. So the first time he says, I am he, they fall to the ground. They then, he then says, whom do you seek? And again, they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he says, I am he. But this time, they don't fall to the ground. And I think that's that, this thing of Jesus going, in that moment, I don't want to die. I don't really want to drink this cup of suffering. I can show you. Actually, I'm the one in control here. And they fall to the ground. And then the second time around, he goes, but hang on. I need to submit to the will of my Father. And it's the will that he has sought beforehand. (coughs) (laughs) This is the example that Jesus sets for us. It's to seek and understand the will of God and to obey it. But how does he do that? What can we learn to do the same? What practical things can we apply in our lives so that we can say, not my will, but yours be done? 
So I want us to go back to our melodic harmony. We have this worldly garden, and our natural response is to, to take control of our circumstances. Yet Jesus' cup of suffering that he drinks, which is a death sentence to an innocent man, it allows us a glimpse of a new garden, a different garden, an eternal garden, a garden that's not part of this world, a garden where we are united to Christ. It's a garden of different perspective. There's a coming garden where Christ and not our circumstances are completely in control. And having this different perspective changes how we react to the gardens in our lives. So I don't know where Sid is. He didn't doctor this water. I, I was trying to, I don't know how effective it was. I was trying to make a point that often we don't like the taste of the cup that God is giving us to drink. The thing that God is asking us to give up, that circumstance, that pursuit of wealth, that relationship that he's asking us to restore, that private sin in your life, that cup of suffering, we don't like the taste. There's this beautiful little proverb that I found in Proverbs chapter 24, verse 12. Don't excuse yourself by saying, look, we didn't know. For God understands all hearts and he sees you. He who guards your soul knows you knew. He will repay all people as their actions deserve. So what can we do when we don't like the taste? Can we go, God, I don't know. Did, did you really mean that? No, God knows that you knew. We, what do we do when our kids are sick and we know that they need to take medicine and they don't, want it, they don't like the taste of it, they don't want to take it and we tell them it's going to be good for you and they take it because they trust us as their parents and because we are telling them that it's going to be good for them. And in the same way, we need to know that if God is giving us a cup of suffering, it is going to be good for us. And secondly, we can trust God because we know that God is good. We need to trust that drinking that cup is ultimately going to be a good thing for us and draw us closer to God. And that this garden of Gethsemane that we find ourselves in will pass. So in order to trust that God is good, and in order for us to be able to say, not my will, but your will be done, these are the things that we need to do. So the first thing is we need to remember that there's a future garden coming. We need to remember that this current garden of Gethsemane that we're in is temporary. It's not permanent. And having a different perspective, whenever we've got hindsight and we can look back on a problem, it really helps us. And in the midst of those problems, if we, can, if we had to know how that problem would turn out, we would, we would react differently and we would behave differently. It would be very easy for us in the midst of a financial situation if we knew in a year's time that everything would be taken care of to go, oh, okay, cool, God. Yeah, I'll drink this cup. Because I know how it's going to turn out. We don't know how it's going to turn out. But we do know that there is a future garden we do know that there's a God in that garden that loves us and cares for us. And in the midst of that, it changes the perspective of how we view our current circumstances. That's our first point. Secondly, when we feel overwhelmed by life's circumstances, what helps us is to remember that Christ can relate to our circumstances. Jesus knows what it was like to be betrayed by a friend. 
his closest friend, Judas, betrays him with a kiss. He knows what it's like to be deserted by friends. His disciples scatter and flee in his moment of need. Jesus knows what it's like to be hated. The part here is that the people that are showing their hatred are not necessarily common people of Israel or especially evil people, but it's the religious leaders and the high priests and the church that are hating him. Jesus knows what it is to be slandered. People with sheer just malice and jealousy determined to make a case against him. Jesus knows what it is like to be misrepresented and have stories about him twisted and knows what it's like to face physical violence and death. Jesus experienced all of the above, even when it was within his ability to control those circumstances, even when he could have used three words to control those circumstances. He submits to God's will because he wants his Father's will to be done. He knows that there's another garden after the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows that Gethsemane is temporary, and he knows his Father. People, they they often talk about a near-death experience. If someone has had a near-death experience, how it just changes their perspective. Grudges that had been held for generations, bitterness, people that they could never forgive. Or or maybe it just puts the, the perspective of things in their lives that are important. It just changes the priority of those things. So if their priority was just the pursuit of wealth, it just starts to pale in significance when they're this close to the end of their lives. You see, this near-death experience changes their perspective, but we don't need a near-death experience to change our perspective. We've got Jesus' death experience, which changes our perspective and puts a focus on what really matters. So that circumstance that we thought of earlier, that really difficult, difficult thing that's happening or has happened in your life, when you shine the light or the lens of eternity onto this thing that's happening now, does it change anything for you? Because Jesus' death should change everything for us. I'm going to come into land, and, and maybe the band can come up now, but there's, there's one more point that I want us to share. So the first thing was, how do we drink this cup of suffering? It's to remember that there's another garden coming. There's a future perspective. The second thing is to remember that Christ can relate to our circumstance. But the third thing that we need to remember is that in the same way that when we give medicine to our kids, our kids trust us because they know who we are, it would be good for us to remember and remind ourselves of who Christ is, who he is and who he says we are. And I just want to go through 25 statements about what God's word says about us. They're short, but you'll find all these verses in the Bible. And it will be so good for us to just remember and remind ourselves of who God is and who he says we are. Number one, God has expressed his kindness to me. God's power works through me. I am a citizen of heaven. I am a dwelling for the Holy Spirit. I am a holy temple. I am a light in the world. I'm a light to others and can exhibit goodness, righteousness, and truth. I'm a member of Christ's body. I'm a member of God's household. I'm a minister of reconciliation. 
I'm a new creation. I'm a personal witness of Jesus Christ. I'm a saint. I'm adopted as his child. I'm alive with Christ. I'm assured all things work together for good. I am blameless. I am blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. I am born again. I am born of God and the evil one cannot touch me. I am chosen and dearly loved. I am chosen before the creation of the world. I am Christ's friend. I am completed by God. I am confident that God will perfect the work he had begun in me. So when we don't like this cup of suffering that we may need to drink, can we trust in Jesus because he can relate to our circumstances? Can we trust in God because he is who he says he is? And can we remember that this garden of Gethsemane we find ourselves in is not the be-all and end-all, that there's a garden to come, and we can keep our eyes focused on this garden. It's going to help us endure our gardens of Gethsemane.